I'm Jacob. This is the Mind Glue Podcast, and today we have a space lawyer talking with us. Please enjoy. Hey guys, this is Jacob with the Mind Glue Podcast again. I have a really special guest here with me today. Heather, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you so much. And thank you so much for um, having me on your show, Jacob. Um, so my name is Heather allen and I'm a British and Australian legal academic. And for the last year and a bit, I've been living in Iceland, where I've been working on a number of things that I think are very interesting. And uh, Iceland is certainly a really fascinating place as well. So, yeah. So like what brought you to Iceland so far? Because I know that you're doing a lot of things internationally and we're, we'll, we'll talk more about where you've kind of been and what, you, what you'll be doing this year. But what sure. brought you to Iceland? Um, well, the, the thing that brought me here originally was their constitution. So one of the things I study academically and what I wrote my PhD on is um, constitutions and comparative constitutional law, so, which is a bit funny, like as a British person studying constitutions, it's like being um, from the States and being like an expert in soccer, like the rest <laughs> of the world does it, but like Brits don't have a constitution, but every other country has a constitution. Um, and Iceland had this really fascinating constitution drafting process over the last 10 years after the global financial crisis that left a massive impact here. Um, they had a kind of sort of revolution and a, and a new initiative to write a new constitution. And that was interesting in and of itself how they drafted that. I call it like the Google Docs constitution, which is a bit of a cliche, but basically that they, um, the country is so small, it's 350,000 people. They were able to kind of like uh, crowdsource um, the constitution and get a lot of like oh, wow. citizen input and civic initiatives in what should be in the constitution. So I found that very interesting as someone interested in democracy and constitutions. This is all very newly relevant as, you know, we're all watching the news in the States and talking about uh, constitutions and democracy. Um, <laughs> very democratic. But, uh, everything in the world's have hopefully getting to more uh, democratic process. So that's actually right. really nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then there was, so that was interesting and in of itself. And then there was this provision in the new proposed constitution that I found really fascinating, which was this idea that um, future generations have a right to a clean environment. And I thought that this was such a brilliant, simple way to embed provisions for climate change and the climate crisis into constitutions by using the language of human rights, which is what my, my background, my first master's within, um, was in human rights, human rights law, um, to say that um, those who are not born yet have have a right, our future generations have a right to a clean environment and therefore we have a kind of um, counterbalancing responsibility to protect the environment and therefore should put in all sorts of provisions to um, mitigate against uh, the worst impact of, of climate change. And if that was such a fascinating idea, I thought I'll come here, see how that idea came about and see how we could then thread it into other national constitutions uh, worldwide. But um, being in Iceland threads into a lot of other things I'm very interested because the fishing industry is such an, at least pre-2008 when the global financial crisis happened, the fishing industry was is such a kind of cornerstone of um, Icelandic uh, culture, society and economy. So that raises all sorts of very interesting things to do with maritime law. And then up in the north in Iceland's uh, second city, Akureyri, um, uh, they have the Polar Law Institute, and I've always been very interested in polar law. So I thought I'd go um, uh, to the place where people are looking at, at polar law. So it's such a great intersection of all the different things that I'm uh, really interested in and, and really passionate about. Absolutely. And it, what really interests me about this is that like, when you can 
implement human rights into it. it you know i know it's a very controversial thing right now with with the climate change or climate crisis but you know when it really breaks down you can put it in, in its most simple terms that you know everybody can get behind your children and your children's children deserve to have a, a clean and, and free environment to to be able to grow in and to uh and to give on to their future generations so it's like i feel like anybody can really get behind that so it's an interesting kind of concept that you have to put it into a constitution but that you can create this these these rights and these laws for people within these countries that will really do them a benefit in the end so tell me about this this polar institute and uh in the maritime law that's going around like iceland right now since you're there you can you can kind of be in this bubble and you can tell us a little bit about what's happening in the area since you said that in iceland their their fishing industry is so important Sure. Yeah. And there's intersecting, she said, the, the, like mar of maritime law and polar law. And in a way, Iceland is one of the places where the two really, you know, converge. There are sure. lots of places where maritime law is important, but, uh, you know, Pacific Island nations where where maritime, uh, where polar law is not also an element. Um, the Polar Law Institute up in Akari do some really um, uh, fantastic work on um you know, issues to do with like claims and contested uh, claims, contested areas in the time when the Arctic region is really kind of hotting up again as a kind of terrain of uh, geopolitical power plays and a sort of scramble for for resources. Um, and then with maritime, that intersects with maritime law in terms of the um, uh, the Arctic um uh, the movement of ships in the in the Arctic, which has this additional component. Something I find so sad is like the the um, existing impact of climate change has meant that um, as the ice caps melt in the Arctic, new routes open up, and you could use that in a responsible way, or you could say, "Oh, great! So now I can get my icebreaker and smash through mm. this new pathway to drill more." Which is what's I'm I'm not going to name which nation states do that. Some nation states are quite keen uh, to do that. So the maritime law and polar law really kind of intersect up here. But um, I'm also interested in in maritime in maritime law as a whole. Um, I think one thing that's been very striking being here is um, the looking at the impact that um, the fishing industry has on the rest of politics as yes. well. It's actually one of the reasons why so this constitution that I'm super fascinated and one of the reasons why it fell apart was to do with um, the, the role of the fishing industry in, in society in very complex ways. And I have friends on kind of both sides of that, uh, that debate and that conversation. Um, it's also very interesting on a light note, very interesting for me as a British person, because Iceland is an incredibly peaceful country country it actually doesn't have a standing army i think canada is sort of like its keeper in nato like if anyone were to attack it because it doesn't even have its own standing army which is very good for me after my years in authoritarian states where i was just used to seeing tanks on the streets it's very very <laughs> good for God. my brain to be in a country that doesn't have a standing army but imagine. um but uh, but iceland only had one quote-unquote war in its history it was actually like an economic war no one really died they sort of sabotaged fishing nets and stuff and it was with the british Hmm. Um, and it was over fish. It was, and they call it the Cod Wars. Um, so it's also really interesting. You can see how important um, fishing is. That seems um, like a very British thing to fight over. It's, yeah, it's very well. It's also really embarrassing. Like it's a kind of um, self-hating Brit. Well, someone. I'm very, you know, like I think we should be very conscious of and and acknowledge the damage of the colonial legacy. It's pretty embarrassing being here. It's like, well, the most peaceful country in the world, and even Britain still managed to pick a fight with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. 
Well, let me ask you this because because I find it interesting that they're because their fishing industry is so important, but they don't have an army. Do they have any sort of like established naval forces? And do those what I guess what I'm trying to understand here is like if there is some sort of like shipping vessel force or what you could imagine being as close to a naval force as possible within Iceland, do they have to work closely with the Polar Institute and other people who specialize in maritime law in order to kind of maintain? their their um what i'm trying to say here their like environmental impact world of waters that's a really good question i'm actually embarrassed i don't know as much about this as i should so to clarify iceland is actually a member of nato um they just don't have a a standing army so you see katrin jakobsdottir the prime minister kind of going to nato i I don't want to uh, parody her because i i have a great deal of respect for her and especially her positions on uh, green um initiatives um but you know it's kind of a bit of a joke that she's sort of sitting there next to like all the 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 generals um (laughs) in nato and talking about how they should uh, make the recycling scheme more gender neutral friendly you know talking very like nordic utopic terms to the military so like the, the iceland um does have this seat at nato and it has this particular relationship with canada who would my understanding be kind of like guard it were there to be any kind of incursion i don't they, there's not a concern here about military um interference which is actually a good question because in a lot of the rest of scandinavia there is right Mm. i mean like i've been trying to talk in very neutral terms here and not name particular nation states but like the the unspoken element is russia right like russian um in like russian movement in the arctic and russian kind of buzzing airspaces of um other nordic nations so you know in, in norway for instance um I think that's that's quite kind of high on their concerns and that kind of the, all this the vying for power that happens up in the Arctic itself. Um, Iceland isn't one of the Arctic five. Like um, the Arctic, unlike the Antarctic, is quite kind of binary. You're either one of the five literal states or you're not. Um, and Iceland isn't one of the literal states, um, but it is kind of um, so it becomes a sort of. Um, hub for all the kind of analysis of all these issues because it's not really a play, you know, because it's it's not a huge, you know, superpower. Like the the literal states like uh, Russia, Norway, Canada. Um, and but one thing that has been very interesting while being here is looking at Greenland, mm. um, where I was meant to go, but uh, COVID uh, prevented me from from visiting uh, uh, over the last year. Um, where you really see um, the movement of superpowers to kind of claim Greenland as a kind of door to the Arctic region. So a lot of movement there from oh. both the Chinese and the Russia. I don't know if you remember when Trump offered to buy Greenland. Do you remember? Oh my gosh, I don't remember that. That's interesting. Tell me tell me a little bit about that really quick. A little, little anecdotal part. So many, like, so many sort of through the looking glass things happened over the last four years. You kind of forget some of the crazy things Absolutely. that happened during the Trump administration for this this these final few weeks where it's kind of gone out with a bang. But um I think it was about a year, I think it was 2019, he offered to buy Greenland mm. and uh, there was a big kind of furore about it on, on social media. But one um, kind of thing that came from it was these, these um, you know, Denmark saying, you know, how dare this is kind of insult to our sovereignty. But kind of then when people were kind of digging a bit closer into that, if they didn't know so much about Greenland before, it was like, well, actually, Denmark colonized Greenland. And so <laughs> how 
however much, you know, Europeans might like to sneer, and I'm not anti-American, but if Europeans might like to sneer, like, oh, you know, silly American, silly Trump saying something, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But actually, there is a very painful legacy of European colonialism. So Europeans like Denmark can't kind of stand on any moral high ground the way that they um, abused uh, Greenlanders. Um, that is certainly something that I feel like many countries have to think about is that like America is not the only colonizers out there. Like there's going to be other countries that, that have done that in the past. But, exactly. you know, what yeah. would what would be honestly the, the benefit of them? you know, being able to sell it. Like, well, I, I, I don't see it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a crass, it was very, like Trump handled it in a very crass manner, but it touched upon actually a more kind of serious issue of like um, the um, everybody um, who wants to try to have a stake in the Arctic, trying to get a position in one of these um, kind of peripheral regions so that they'll be well placed. Um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to understand here is like, what, what would be, you know, what's the advantage of being able to get up into the Arctic? Arctic and having a place there. Is there something that they're particularly looking for, considering they have such a lack of resource? Um, oil. Oh, oil ah. um, under the surface, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the what it's going to be a lot for uh, for many countries out there, just, just more energy. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. And um, and uh, I touched on this earlier, but this issue that um, the 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 damage that has already been done by climate change uh, has opened up to the, with the melting of the ice caps has opened up new routes mm. and that has created ways, um, sorry, to, um, to find new inroads, um, to, to do further Arctic drilling. Um, and so that makes it kind of even more of, um, a kind of scramble um, at the moment to be the first one to kind of get in on that, which can sure. lead to all sorts of very kind of seedy power plays and needs to be handled quite responsibly. Um, I've always thought that, you know, we have we have these parts of the world that we haven't extensively researched, I suppose, or maybe we have, but it's very, it's been very small groups of people. And I always thought, like, you know, it's one thing to to colonize a place and it's one thing to have uh, have like a bunch of people there there for some sort of research purposes and we can kind of relate this um, to later on when we'll talk about the space law but I'm just curious because we have parts of the world that do do seem to have some sort of mystery surrounding them and it yeah. wouldn't hurt to have people there to try to understand like what the climate's like like what is it is it viable is it a viable place for people to live as long as they do certain certain measures to sure. to mitigate death and whatnot but the survivability is 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 probably very low in the arctic right. and antarctic yeah well the thing is i'm very in favor of scientific exploration of the arctic i think that's a wonderful thing the more we learn about that region and the more collaboration between nations on a scientific level sure. uh, a very bad thing when academia becomes politicized like academics going up there to to conduct research is is that's that's something that's for the benefit of all mankind but it's when that can kind of get stymied by these again these sort of like uh geopolitical power plays it's quite um is quite frustrating there's also indigenous groups right they're arctic if you um if you think about <laughs> this is a very obvious point but everything joins up at the top mm. of a sphere right so everything is actually quite close <laughs> when once you go up it's not like around the equator where it would take you a very long time to go around and so um the different indigenous groups if you kind of look down from from the arctic from above there's actually a lot of like a really kind of culturally rich and 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 historically rich 
um, mix of of, in, of indigenous uh, peoples from um, from First Nation Canadians um, to the Sami uh, to Greenlanders to other groups, and um, and they have been you know part of the Arctic world um, for you know far before um, European colonialism and they're, um, you know, also ensuring that their rights are, are recognized and that they can continue to practice their way of life is also an important part of um, of Arctic law. And that's where Arctic law does intersect with uh, with human rights law. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, because your expertise uh, comes from human rights law and because of these constitutional laws, have you tried wherever you go to try to understand uh, like First Nations people and how you can implement that into constitutions if that's what you're there to do? Um, that's that's a wonderful question. So <coughs> interesting. I mean, everything we've talked about so far has been in the Northern Hemisphere, but um, I'm, I'm British and Australian and I'm currently um, working to become an Australian qualified lawyer as well. Um, and so when I spent a year in Australia, actually the, the when I'm, like, I'm, I'm Australian, but I, I went back there in, in 2018, I was based there. My sister is um, very involved in um, issues to do with uh, indigenous um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, rights in Australia. That was certainly very much at like the forefront of my mind of um, how law can, law, law, law being a kind of a scalpel that you can use for good or for bad. Um, it has this sort of inherent moral ambivalence in it. And um, law has been used to kind of brutalize and oppress um, indigenous peoples in many parts of the world, but including Australia, um, with the white Australia policy and these issues. And so I was looking a lot at native titles since um, the, the landmark Marvel, Marbo ruling in Australia that declared that Australia wasn't uh, terra nullius prior to um, uh, the European um invasion or colonialism um so in a strange way my ish, my interests intersect even though i'm working on the, the far north <laughs> looking at all these issues in my other uh, world with this other thing i'm doing my my the australian side of my heritage um and uh working for my australian law degree the thing that's very much at the forefront of my mind is um the issue of aboriginal and torres strait islanders so in australia that's not in the constitution they are not recognized um in the constitution and there's this huge debate about securing recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Australian constitution, which I personally think is very important, but I obviously defer to what Aboriginal and Australia of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians say themselves about this, right? I, the last thing um, the world needs is like another person who's not from those groups rocking up and telling them what to do. <laughs> and there are internal debates in um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander activist groups about, you know, some, some of whom say, well, we don't want our name on this piece of paper because it's just kind of like bringing us to the table of, of colonialism, but not dismantling the colonial project. But there are many more activists say that securing recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Australian constitution would provide this great tool in law to for legal activism to then mobilise for all their other rights, which is particularly important uh, yeah. because of the continued um, discrimination and structural violence and structural injustice against um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Sure. Um, like the, so, sorry, I know, it's hot, I know that I'm talking about Australia and we were talking about the Arctic, but no, no, so Indigenous fine. Peoples and Human Rights is very much at the forefront of my mind in everything that I do with constitutions, because constitutions are basically about who gets to sit at the table to make the rules that govern all of us and what should those rules look like. And and so you have like factoring in historical justices and marginalized groups is such an important part of um, how to write a good and a, a just and a robust constitution. It makes sense 
that people, the aboriginals and the First Nations people who don't really, who never wanted to be, like you said, a part of the table, uh, bringing them in and especially having people who aren't from those areas, it's kind of just a slap in the face. I can totally imagine that these individuals are like, no, we're going to protect ourselves. You can say all day that you're going to protect us, but we saw what happened hundreds of or whatever year, how many, however many right. years ago, right. and it can right. happen again. Those institutions, yeah, I can, I can completely respect that that perspective. Yeah. So let me get this straight. So, like when uh, when you do try to advocate for for Aboriginals and and people uh, that have been taken kind of taken advantage of or, or definitely taken advantage of yeah. or their ancestors by the government that's in place you know do you try to more so just advocate from afar because like you said you know getting a, getting involved when you're not uh when you're not someone who lives there you're not someone who's from there it kind of makes it a little dicey for those people so do you try to just do, right. do you try to just help along yeah i mean i personally feel like my my uh place is sort of a, is a as a white Australian is just to sort of learn and, and listen to them and listen to um, the experiences of, of people from these groups. But I do think, so there was this very important historical ruling in 1985 in Australia called the, the Mabo case, which established that um, Australia didn't belong to nobody until um, Europeans turned up and claimed parts of the land. And so that opened up this whole area of law called native title to make native type, to make claims to land where land is such an integral part of many um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders sort of sense of of self and, and identity, like the, the tie to the land. Um, yeah. I mean, when you think that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Aboriginal Australians have been in Australia for 50,000 years, right? These, wow. you know, that, that tie to the land is something that I think our, you know, my mindset wouldn't even be able to, I wouldn't be able to understand the, the trauma of being kind of ripped from your land when you've had that kind of connection. So lots of both uh, ab- Aboriginal and uh, non-Aboriginal um, lawyers and legal activists have been working on native title since 1985 to establish claims to land to kind they see it as a kind of structural redress or like historical redress of the colonial project to say okay well this land over here belongs to these this group this land here belongs to that and kind of proving that in law so it's not that law has to be inherently colonial some people would argue that it is I don't think the law has to be inherently colonial I think of law as kind of like a surgeon's scalpel like you could do a lot of damage with it or you can do a lot of good um, I mean think about civil rights like the civil rights movement in in America was through like legal activism was a really integral part of it right bringing landmark cases to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court establishing certain things was one, one of the integral parts of the um, mid-20th century American civil rights movement right and similar in Australia, particularly native title, um, has been a kind of a, a mode of, it's been a mode of, of legal activism by these groups. But there are other um, Aboriginal activists that say, you know, well, look, this, this kind of obsession with getting recognition in the constitution may be kind of still like playing the white man's game of like, okay, well, something's written on a piece of paper and that makes it real. Like, how is that going to help the, when the realities on the ground are so bad, like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians die on Aboriginal. 20 years younger than Anglo descended Australians. There's so many uh, structural inequalities like in their um, health system and access to education, um, all sorts of access, access to justice. Um, there may be um, uh, a kind of an obsession with let's get this in the constitution or not is, is a distraction from like the really important grassroots activism on the ground. And I have, yeah. again, like 
I, my my perspective is like, well, I'll just listen to you when you say that, because, you know, who am I to to say what should be the priorities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Yeah, you always um, want to listen to those yeah. who it's been affected. But let me ask you this, you know, because I find it kind of interesting that, you know, you, you had mentioned it's it's kind of playing the white man's game. But I mean, let's be honest, like there are other first world countries out there where it's not going to be the majority population is, is white individuals or people who are in power or white or anything like that. I mean, you have superpowers like China, Japan. And I mean... I mean, it could have been just as easily a few hundred years ago, a couple thousand years ago, that Japanese or Chinese or or, or really any other sort of major population went into Australia and, and gotten people out and taken the claim of the land. So is it is it difficult when you're having to speak to these people when you have to speak down to them in 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 terms that they can understand when because all of this all of this lawyer you know. In conjecture like I'm sure like it, it flows over my head I really don't understand a lot of it but when I can talk to somebody like you you have an expertise in the field you know do you try to explain to them like this is basic human rights that that most everyone in the world wants for everyone else so it's very important to be able to understand it so you have to start with an education of it so do you try to explain to them you know the basic laws of nature and the basic human rights that they deserve as well as everybody yeah. That's yeah, that's a good question. Again, it's like this, like law is a scalpel. They, it could go, you know, they could be, um, there could be very problematic imperialist ways in which that's done, or there could be ways which is done that, that are kind of for the, the good of the flourishing of, um, uh, of historically marginalized groups. I think that, um, what you're re- kind of touching on there is this idea of human rights education, which I think is really, really important and telling people what rights they do have. And I think there has been some really great initiatives, um, over the last sort of 20, 30 years on, um, educating like historically marginalized groups and groups of the, the global South about, um, what, rights do you already have in human rights law and that human rights law is a tool for you and there is this critique that you know that human rights are a sort of a product of the enlightenment and it's an, just another kind of imperialism and we know how it has been weaponized to quite um problematic ends right invading a country in order to give them human rights so it's something that you know sits very uncomfortably with lots of people who who work on human rights um and i've i've gone through my own process where i'm being quite kind of disillusioned with human rights then coming back to them and i think that it's a way of saying um um, uh, that those those principles are these universal underlying ideas that everyone has inherent dignity, right? And that is a concept that you find in in every culture. Um, and there are these very pan cultural ideas of like when I was working on the Arab uh, revolutions and I was studying the constitutions of the Arab world, which is what I wrote my PhD on after um, 2011. Where again, you know, I was very conscious of like the colonial heritage of like going and studying uh, of these constitutions and and the colonial heritage already of both the British and the French um, legal influences. So you have co- the common law and the civil law system um, together in countries like Egypt. Um, that like one of the big cries of, of the uh, 2011 revolutions was like Karama, like which like it has different connotations, but kind of has an underlying concept of of dignity right um and similarly with the south african constitution after the end of apartheid and um, there's this wonderful book called um soul of a nation which is um uh, an analysis of the uh, process of making the south african constitution after the end of the apartheid era and looking at how it was uh you know such an incredible achievement um 
by anti-apartheid activists to get this new constitution and the how they were using like the concept of Ubuntu um, and speaking to kind of the human rights concepts um, from sort of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, like all we are all created equal, we all have our right to dignity, we all have our right to have our basic needs met and how those concepts manifest in other cultures as well. They just don't call them human rights. So I think that there's been some really great work in kind of like um, getting these worlds to speak to one another. So the the language of international human rights law and the language of a culture that also says, you know, every culture says, you know, stealing is bad, murder is bad, rape is bad, um, treat others as you would want to be treated. (laughs) But kind of matching those up to kind of culturally specific ways of understanding how we treat other people. And of course, I mean, this is is something that I feel that just like all things they evolve in in the world but do you think human rights law is different now than it maybe was like a hundred years ago because the way i see it is is that basic human rights could be a very different meaning to somebody who all they want is the ability to survive off the land and to not have government interference Right. Yeah, no, that's a really great question. In a way, like human rights were born in 1948. And before then, you had sort of natural law and you had concepts of dignity. And with Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, we had this on the national level, we had this concept of self-determination. So we had these kind of um, understandings that then coalesced in the post-1948 period with Eleanor Roosevelt's big kind of push to secure um, uh, the all the signatories for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with this sort of founding charge and founding principles of the UN and was also a, a born of the Holocaust, right? It was it was born of uh, the post-Holocaust world, where of the the world kind of like reeling in shock and said, well, whatever we do to each other, we do not do this to one another. That to me is how I think the concept of of human rights in the modern sense were really born. And I, I carry that with me. I think there's some good in that to kind of carry that concept of human rights with you to say whatever else we think of one another, we do not do this to one another. Like the, the never forget element of human rights, I think it is important. And I don't think that's colonial. I think that's saying that, you know, every person has inherent dignity, that Auschwitz was like the nadir of human, um, of the worst of human behavior. Absolutely. Um, but you're right, like what human rights do mean very different things to different people because um, their, their ways of being in the world are so different and their ways of conceptualizing themselves and other people are so different. And it's like the concept of freedom, right? The concept of freedom means such different things to different people and you mentioned this idea of like non-interfering like being left alone for a lot of people the freedom to freedom means like well, I want the government to stop interfering with me but then um, a more um, sort of socialistic conception of freedom would be I want to be enabled to do something so like part of my freedom would be having like a hospital that's well funded or you know having a good school or that kind of thing and that's that's there's that individualistic versus collectivist tension is always going to be there in human rights. And it's why we have the two covenants, not the one covenant. We have one covenant on civil and political rights, which I think they're they're basically the kind of leave me alone rights. And then we have the international covenant on economic, social and cultural rights, which are the kind of 
please help me <laughs> rights. You know, so the, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights are things like um, I have a right to privacy. I have a right to freedom of expression. They're they're kind of what, you know, J.S. Mill, right? Like, leave me alone rights. And uh, the Ec- International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights are the kind of like, well, like, um, can my hospital function and can I please have a right to education and I have a right to clean water rights, which are help me rights, mm. which require state interfere or they require some kind of actor to help you secure them because like hospitals don't grow on trees um so yeah it's a very something has to be organized within human rights yeah well let me get this straight because i i think i think it's important to mention this as well you know how much do you think it's how important do you think it is for the government to have to take care take care of their citizens uh with with tax dollars from citizens who pay them when it comes down when it comes down to it there are people out there who are not trying to help themselves and they're really not interested in helping other people, but they have no right. problem taking government subsidies and it's checks. The dilemma, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in political philosophy, it's a sort of it's the freeloader problem, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that I mean that these are getting more into kind of like public policy in general right now, and what you want a society to look like. And I I respect the views of people kind of across the the spectrum on that. My I am you know I'm from Europe and I'm currently living in a very Nordic country that you know where people pay high taxes. And then, you know, their, their hospital is very good. And that's very part of that's part of like the Nordic conception of social democracy. Um, so I, I do have empathy with people who feel a kind of frustration of like, well, why am I pouring all my resources, all my labor, all my work into like a system that, that then is is not, you know, why can't I just kind of like go, go, go at my own, <laughs> go my own way. Um, but I personally think that humans are social creatures and, um, you know, lifting we kind of we all rise together and so i'm personally quite in favor of um quite a sort of statist way of of being in the world yeah sure sure now i will say you know there uh, you know perhaps you and i would agree or disagree on certain on certain policies of this but it is at least the conversation is there to where you can understand what's happening and why it's happening but people yeah. just come to different conclusions i honestly believe yeah. that if i were to have to pay 60 percent tax off of my paycheck uh i probably wouldn't own a home like i do right now right. i probably wouldn't yeah. own a car to drive around in and i mean i'm only yeah. 24 years old i bought my home and when i was 22 years old because i worked for so long and yeah. i and i didn't go to school immediately so i mean yeah. there's opportunities there for everybody and in different countries it means different things for them maybe it's uh, not so much a uh, a priority to to buy a home when you're young or to even have a car because everything's so sure. close around you but at least there's the opportunity and I think it's uh, right. the equality. Yeah. It's like the, the equity that comes from the opportunity of, uh, of, you know, just what's going on in, in your country. So I, you know, we've talked about, we've covered human rights law. We've covered a little bit of environmental law and we've, and we've covered, you know, I, I would say yeah. several different fields that, you, that you've been proficient in because you got your PhD from what I understand, you got your PhD in sociolegal studies from the university of Oxford, Oxford, where have right. you kind of taken that and 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 run the ball run with the ball so to speak because you've seemed to have dipped your toes in so many different things is there an end goal is there like a an end goal in mind that you have right now yeah that's a great question <laughs> it's a question i ask myself a lot i think it's become i i um i have a lot of respect for like le- legal academics so mine would be to be sort of like a a law professor who would then kind of engages in the world in <clears throat> in ways when, when it's useful, like to to kind of um, firstly educate the next generation of um, uh, legal thinkers, but also to um, uh, kind of 
engage in issues like these very complex thorny questions of of like public policy from the lens of of law so that would be my my kind of goal i don't i don't plan on becoming like a supreme court judge or anything <laughs> but uh but uh yeah that's one that's one um way i kind of like to kind of continue being in the world when i get my um australian law degree as well so then it'd be to be a dual qualified lawyer i might try to spend more time in australia um working on issues over there i mean i made all these plans like pre-march 2020 and then the world imploded and <laughs> since then i've been um i've been i've been on this like very lovely strange little island like watching the world fall apart um <laughs> So, yeah, so we'll see. But, uh, yeah, that's my goal. But I'm enjoying Iceland in the meantime, which is important. Well, good. As long as you're enjoying where you are, that's that's the most important thing. So I, I think definitely recommend it if you ever have. I mean, again, oh, if, sure. as and when the world gets to a place where we can travel again, I definitely recommend a visit to Iceland. It's a really, Hell really yeah. I, place. Yeah. I love traveling. I find it, it, you know, last year it was such a it was it was. God, it was such a kick in the pants to not be able to go the places that I wanted to go and see the places that I wanted to see. The The best thing that happened for me, honestly, was just getting a really good job before everything really started to kind of shut down and right. being able to work from home. So I haven't had like, you know, I haven't had to like have many expenses, to be honest. And I, I got everything yeah. provided for me from the company that I work for. So thankfully, it's just been, you know, certain people had to go through all kinds of hell to get to where they are today. Yeah. And, and, it, and it was awful. But so, I, I, you know, I think we've covered so many of the uh, of what makes you to be what makes you to be in the position to where you are now with what I want to talk about. We're kind of reaching the dessert right now. <laughs> I am so interested and so curious as to what you are going to be accomplishing next, because your dream is to have a new treaty for space exploration for all. Yeah. <laughs> what would be yeah. in that treaty? What would the le what would the legislation be, and how are you going to create it? It's <laughs> so yeah, I'm so glad. It's so nice to actually be able to talk to someone about this. So I started kind of posting about this on kind of like like making out like it was a joke like haha also interested in space law I'm actually really sincerely really fascinated by space law and I think it is really important and uh, and as I look at the polar region and I see like well what happens when you have this kind of scrambling and vying for for different power um for different resources the more I think actually we do really need a new treaty for space and we need it soon because um this is a new like unprecedented era despite the impact of COVID still an unprecedented era for um, for space exploration, which is so exciting. I mean, like, who didn't want to be an astronaut when they were eight, right? <laughs> like, right. it's so exciting, you know, to to witness these new um, this new era of of space exploration. But it's a different kind of dynamic to the only other period we know of uh, space exploration, which is um, in, in the twentieth century, where it was underpinned this very antagonistic dynamic of like the USSR trying to, um, you know, scare the American Americans by saying, oh, well, we've got this first and then the Americans come back. So this, these two nation states, these two superpowers, that was the dynamic of 20th century space exploration. Now it's a whole other ballgame because you have many more countries involved. So it's more multipolar. But even more interestingly, you have companies and they're not nation states, right? 
like Elon Musk doesn't work for this, you know, for for not he doesn't work for the state of America or he's South African by citizenship. Um, he is working for a company and his company. And when you have companies looking for things it just raises all sorts of questions of like well if they find a resource does that belong to that company does it belong to the country in which that company is registered does it belong to all of humanity there are so many really fascinating dilemmas and questions and I'm not even saying I have the answers to them I'm just saying we need to be like asking those questions because we know in all other eras of um exploration that they they if you didn't put kind of if you didn't make the rules of the game very well signposted beforehand it can turn into all sorts of kind of toxic damage like in the the arctic now right with the russians and the arctic drilling and all of these kind of dynamics um and so uh i actually even though i kind of joke about it a bit on social media i actually i'm i'm actually writing a book about uh space lore and i have um a visiting fellowship coming up in a in a institute yes uh, please tell us about space. the visiting fellowship yeah, although it's now going to probably going to be online only because of of COVID, but sure. um, there's still. But I'm but I'm working on this this book, and when I'm writing the book, I'm thinking a lot about polar issues, um, and also maritime law and aviation law, where there are there are lots of parallels, and there are also ways in which the, the parallels don't hold. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's basically to do. We already have a treaty. I should state this in case um your listeners don't don't know. There is there is the Outer Space Treaty. There is already um, a document in international law and in, in the UN system. And there are different uh, space. So Luxembourg is like this big hub of um, of the different uh, kind of space people working for the different space agencies. So there's already coordination. Like there are already things in place. It's not a, like a total Wild West. Um, and I shouldn't talk as though I'm like the only person in the world who's ever thought, hey, space exploration, that <laughs> might mean some things, <laughs> you know, for, for nation states and access to resources. Um, but I think think it's really important to uh for us to like societally have that on the agenda like I mean I I'm a millennial even though I'm kind of getting old um <laughs> so I'm you know I don't remember like this baby boomer like excitement with the first era of space exploration you know, my dad talks yeah. to me a lot about you know what what a kind of thrill that was and how that you know it was such a like cultural moment right like you know first man on the moon first man in space it really was it was uh, huge like everybody was crowded around their tv or they were down like sure. just watching yeah. it live like it was exactly. amazing it's amazing and i do think that is amazing. i mean space exploration is amazing i find it totally astonishing i don't i'm not being like some kind of like scrooge or like debbie downer saying oh no we have to like make sure this is all equitable and just like i'm not i'm not trying to be down on it i think it's and it gives me so much hope right like i, I spend a lot of time looking at like you know human rights violations and the climate crisis and all the difficulties of the world and then you look up to the stars and you just this universe out there and how like astonishing that is i have a friend here who's um an israeli icelandic photographer who photographs the milky way and he shows me these pictures through like stop mo i don't know how you do it, but like the how you photograph the milky way and it you know it's mind-blowing it's, it's it's incredible so i think that's wonderful and i think it's it's fantastic that we're having this new era of space exploration but i just think that we need to kind of talk 
as a whole society about how we do it so that it's just. Yes. And what can you tell me about the rules of engagement that are already set in place for countries going into space or for even just companies going into space, I suppose? Yeah, sure. So one of the rules is um, declaration of findings. And I think that's really important. And I agree with this. And I also agree it's kind of quite similar to what happens in the Arctic region. So if you find (coughs) an asteroid that's full of like minerals that we could kind of mine that would be, you know, for the good of, you know, so we never have to like mine in the DRC again, um, which would be a great thing. Um, you have to declare these and they, they, these need to then be passed through the all nation states. Fine. You can't find something and keep it to yourself. So China can't just like find, you know, some asteroid up there that they can mine and just do mining on it themselves and not declare it to the rest of the world. And I think that that's important because we also need to know what's out there. Like, cause there's still the scientific exploration as well. Like scientists should be able to collaborate with one another um that's very important um i i think and and like what hampers scientific progress so often is kind of like oh no but you're from that country i'm from this country and so um like there are different kind of rules for for sharing information with your kind of academic peers if you're a scientist which i think is is really important um where it gets less um, clear is on issues to do with intellectual property with like the technology being developed mm. which I can kind of understand like if you're a company if you're a SpaceX or you're you know another uh, company that's a private company engaging in space exploration and you design some like amazing incredible your engineers your whiz kid superstar brain genius engineers design this incredible thing um and you send it up there like do you should you have to share that i mean there are also issues to do with like yeah you know the rights of intellectual property in that way and so although i might be coming across as very kind of collectivist in some ways in terms of declaring the findings of what you find i do also think it's okay that you know well like that engineer can patent that that doesn't have to you shouldn't you know spacex shouldn't have to share that design with you know china or whatever so there's also really it's a really fascinating intersection of different types of law as well because there is also this intellectual property element you know these i got some friends out in san francisco and um the things they tell me about the engineers they know are working on out there. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's such an amazing time to be alive when we have these like bright brains working on um, these kind of uh, technological innovations. Um, but we need to kind of, yeah, have the conversation of, like what is for all and what is for whom? Yeah. Now, I, it's it's kind of funny how it works because like you said, it's a collectivist sort of idea. But when it comes down to it, it's like if trying to think about here on the ground, here on Earth versus in space. But like in space, if we did find something, I mean, isn't it the responsibility because of how difficult it was to get there to share it with the rest of the world? I I feel like it would be. But I don't know how important it would be for us on the ground if someone here, let's say like someone in Wyoming was to grow a a cross, I don't know, a a cross form of some sort of plant that they have. uh, And this regular farmer just came up with like a a new way to... uh, to 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 i don't know to yield yield crops year round let's say and so that was just a way for uh for for us to be able to like you know end world hunger let's say for example so is it is it the responsibility of people who are in space exploration 
to report their findings. I, I think so. I think 100% I it think is. they have a duty to report their findings. I completely agree with that. I think, and they do actually have have that duty. I think that um, it's okay uh, to have intellectual property rights of something that you've designed. Sure. So, like, you design something, you go up there, you find, you know, your, your mineral asteroid that's going to save us all. You have to tell everyone that you found it. You don't have to give up your um, claim to, like, the tool that got you there. That's right. Like, like that person does have intellectual property rights um, and that's where I'm like slightly less kind of collectivist because I, I sort of very good my father's an engineer and so I have this like great respect for this like reverence for engineers I'm like well an engineer made that you know give respect to that engineer um uh but um I do think, yeah, and the, the parallel with, you know, if you find the thing that cures world hunger, I do think that like a lot of the solutions to our problems on Earth do come from space exploration, right? I do think, you know, I have a lot of criticisms, Elon Musk, but I do think he he's right that like being a multi-planet species will, is what will save us. Um, and I think that it there are myriad ways in which like space exploration is really helpful for people on Earth. Like, so if people say, oh, well, why are you focusing your energy on this when you should be worrying about, you know, the starving millions i would argue that it is a way to address the issue of the starving millions like the but space exploration one very specific one is to do with mining i mean like there was a war in in the democratic republic of congo that basically killed four million people because for the mining for this like very small chip that goes in for the mineral that goes in all our smartphones so if you can mine an asteroid instead that would be kind of much better for for life on earth um the one thing i don't like is when like i find jeff bezos often talks he also says you know like kind of being a multi-planet species will save us i think that he, you shouldn't use it as a distraction to not care about earth right so like if like a bunch of like the global elite go up and build some like colony on mars and they kind of go and live there and then they go okay well now we don't care about earth anymore the rest of the you know the farmer in wyoming like that i don't think that's um that's like an ethical way to kind of go about uh, space exploration okay okay so what do you think uh being an academic of constitutional law as well what do you think it would look like if we were to colonize so i i really think it's more realistic from a layman's perspective to think that we would go to the moon and colonize the moon yeah. first so let's say like it was yeah. the moon what would a constitution <laughs> look like there um yeah that's a great question that's a really really great question and i agree we should be talking about the moon more i think that the, like this idea of mars can be like a bit of a distraction to actually this era of further exploration of the moon and yeah we're going to colonize the moon <laughs> we're not going to colonize mars anytime <laughs> soon um uh, I think that the principles that we have in international human rights law are a very good bedrock to this universal declaration of human rights. Um, and then also learn from our mistakes that we've learned from other, um, you know, countries like the earth. It has this kind of uh, physical geography that then has manifested in um, uh, human geography, political geography, and then the concept of the rise of the nation state in the, in the 19th century that kind of governs so much of how we interact here on earth. In a way, the moon is kind of a good place to kind of press the reset button and say, okay, well, like, how should we operate without being like a nation? You know, this could be like the, you know, the ISS can be kind of a space for all of us. Um, and also, um, you know, we'll have to decide certain languages. So the, the UN system is quite good in this because it already, ha you know, it has its sort of its six official languages. It has sort of rules of engagement, this kind of thing. And maybe that there should be like a keeper for the moon with 
um, in not human rights law, but humanitarian law, IHL, we have like a keeper of the international humanitarian laws and it's Geneva, right? Geneva is sort of the keeper of, well, you know, where, where the Red Cross was born, which actually predates um, international human rights law um, from, from 1948, international humanitarian law, like the rules of the game of war, like whatever else we do to each other, we don't do this to each other, which is like mm. the Geneva Convention, right? Like don't torture a prisoner. Sure. Uh, Geneva is like the keeper of that. I actually think that Luxembourg should be the keeper of um, the rules of the of the moon, because Luxembourg is the is the the hub of all of the work of the different national space organizations. And it's not really a player in and of itself. I mean, it's this tiny little safe, sweet little country. And so they can be kind of like the referee. Um, and I think that might be kind of a good way to to do it, like to have a referee for all of these issues in the same way as like Geneva is like the the referee um, or the keeper of the of the Geneva Conventions in international humanitarian law. Mm, OK, OK. So as long as kind of as long as we were if we were colonizing the moon, if we had these uh, measures in place to just kind of keep tabs on one another, pretty much something like that, we can all make sure that we're keeping each other accountable for what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to phrase it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I do I do like the idea. I love the idea actually of of being able to be so proficient in space exploration that one day we can we can actually live and survive on the moon with I mean, that's however true. that would look. I'm assuming it would be some sort of like biodome st- style deal yeah. where, you know, cl- enclosed uh, capsules and, you know, people living yeah. amongst, you know, whatever whatever sort of like huge thing it would be i guess i don't know some giant space bubble but you know it all does kind of come back to how are we going to do it and what's going to be the legal way to do it what's going to be ethically the way that we can we can execute something like that so there's people like you who will be extremely important in forming our path to get there and being able to engage with one another in you know in in ways that you know are going to benefit everyone so right. what what would you say right is going to be your first step to getting to do something like this, to being able to put together some sort of like space exploration treaty or being able to put the laws in place. What do you, what do you kind of try to compile informatively? Wow. That's, that's a really great uh, question. And I should say, you know, it's not that I'm a key figure in all of this. I'm just some person sort of studying it and thinking about it and and writing a book about it. So it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not the UN secretary general. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just some academic, um, uh, it would be to draw upon what we already have, take the best of what we have on earth and leave behind all the things that we know don't work. So take the best of like international human rights law, take the best of how treaty systems that govern areas where lots of countries are. So the Antarctic ATS, the Antarctic treaty system um, is kind of like a, a really good kind of like rules of the game um, and take both of those things and produce um, a document that would then be kind of signed by every, at least every nation state that's a member of the UN. With North Korea, it gets tricky because it's completely out of the whole international system already. Like it's not in that game. So like how you would get, for instance, North Korea on board is like a it's a more difficult conversation but at least for the rest um you could kind of 
kind of say, well, if you sign up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you also sign up to this. Um, and that would be a way of like establishing it as as kind of like the rules that we all agree. It's like with, um, you know, soccer or, or American football or, or anything like, you know, everyone playing that game knows the rules of that game. And if you don't play according to the rules of the game, you, you know, you can't um, you can't pull out a gun on a football pitch. Right. Mm. Just because you're trying to win your, be your opponent. Um, you, that's against the rules of the game. Um, and similarly with uh, space exploration or with uh, with war, we have rules of the game. You know, we have the um, international humanitarian law that says, you know, well, you can't you can't torture a prisoner. You can't you know, there you can't torture prisoners of war. Um and similarly with space exploration, we devise these very comprehensive rules of the game, which we already have from the Outer Space Treaty. And we have some uh, provisions already in place for these, but make them robust. I mean, everyone who is a party to the UN system say, OK, these are the rules of the game for the moon. And then if there is violation of them, as when there are violations of we have mechanisms in place for when there are violations of um, international law. You know, we have international courts, we have the ICC, we have the ICJ. Um within the UN system and outside of the UN system that similarly there would be a court, you know, there'd be moon, there'd be moon court. <laughs> maybe, maybe I will be a Supreme court judge, but, but for the moon court. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. That would be great. I would love to see you up on the Supreme court for the moon. That's amazing. Well, Hey, you know, Heather, I appreciate you coming on and everything. How can the folks at home keep up with what you're doing and, and see all the strides that you'll be making for, for space law? Oh, that's very kind of you. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I really, really appreciate all of your questions. Um, uh, my book comes out uh, next year. So uh, if you look for Heather Allen's Dottir, um, and I've got a Facebook uh, page under that name, Heather Allen's Dottir, um, that that's so the end of 2021, my, my book will be be out on that. So yeah, that'd be the best way to kind of keep up to it. And I think just in general, if people just start talking more about space exploration, what they want it to look like, I I think that's just going to be great in and of itself like I want that to be like a conversation that like societies are having you know like w what do we want this new era of space exploration to to look like is uh yeah is I think a big big question will certainly inspire people uh to especially have academics like yourself to be discussing this issue so I yeah. really really appreciate it stick around for just a moment I'll, I'll I'll get you right on it here I'll make sure that we can get all those links put in the description share it all over social media make sure people are aware that it's out there folks at home thank, thank you so much for listening this has been the mind glue podcast with Jacob and my guest Heather